Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come before you this morning, we pray that uh, you may be able to help us to understand your word to us in the book of Amos. We pray for seriousness, for uh, a real attentiveness to your word, to be able to uncover uh, what it's saying to us through the Holy Spirit and to really allow it to instruct us, to correct us, to rebuke us if necessary so that we may live lives of glorifying you and being righteous before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, do you ever find uh, that uh, you are very, very sure about something? Oh, you don't need to have that up yet. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Do you ever find that you're ever really sure about something? You know, you're very, very sure that you're right. You're absolutely sure that you're right. And then you go to your class or you go to your lecture or whatever and then you meet out your teacher and your lecturer and your professor and you talk and discuss, you argue and debate and then you realize what you were so sure about, you were actually wrong, you were completely wrong. Uh, well, I don't know whether that happens to you but it happened to me before. But I guess it doesn't matter so much if it's just a class or a subject or a lecture. But imagine if that was the case with the things of God. Imagine if you thought that you really, really understood and were absolutely sure about something about God or the character of God or your relationship with God, but all along you were mistaken. Well, I think that that was sort of the situation that we find in Israel as we come to chapter 3 of the book of Amos. They were, as we understood, uh, living in times of peace and prosperity, as we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, the reign of Jeroboam had brought about a, a very long period of extended rule and what, there was peace and prosperity and the borders were expanding. Uh, probably, if uh, you went back that time, the Samaritan Stock Exchange was going up. Property prices were very good and stable and there was low unemployment. So for many Israelites, they would have felt that they were blessed by God, that they had the right relationship with God. As we will see in the, in the later chapters of the book of Amos, they also felt that they were very religious people. They were very regular in going to the temples. They were very regular in giving their sacrifices. They were very regular in terms of tithing. So if you went to the streets of Samaria and you, you, know, you just went up to random people and you asked them, how is your relationship with God? They would all say, great. Right. My relationship with God is great, great, great. So therefore, as we come to the book of Amos, uh, when Amos went to Israel and started preaching to Israel that God would bring judgment against her, then the response would be one of shock and surprise. And the Israelites in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, would be absolutely shocked that God would, would, would judge her of all people because it seems as if God was blessing her and it seemed as if she was very, very religious. But unfortunately, Amos' message was one of judgment and he was coming to a people who would not be receptive to this message of judgment. So in chapter 1, we looked at the judgment on the nations surrounding Israel. In chapter 2, we saw how judgment had come to Israel herself and she had broken specifically the law which God had given her. But in chapter 3, uh, this, the, the narrative changes, right? the style changes, where now we see that instead of uh, 
facts, it's, it's more like a debate, it's more like a persuasion in terms of what she was meant to do. So look here at chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 3 verse 1, and it says, Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. Now, this uh, section begins with this call to hear, to hear. And I think it's very important because it says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Because all along, it looks as if Amos was the one who was preaching. He was the one prophesying. But Amos wants to make very clear that it is God who is speaking. So hear, hear the word that the, that the Lord has spoken against you. Now, um, is it working? Okay, can we go up to the slide? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, don't worry about all the earlier ones. Oh, great, okay. Now, this is a very common way in which God calls attention to His people. When the people went into the promised land, the first thing that God called them to do was to hear. And what were they to hear? They were to hear the blessings of God and the promises of God. So God said to them, as they entered into the promised land, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the Lord of your fathers, sorry, the God of your fathers promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so this, this context of hearing is very important because it's something that God had done repeatedly in, in, in the history of God's people. But here, when God says to hear this word, He doesn't call His people to hear His promise of blessing, but instead He calls the people to hear His word of judgment. And He says, Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. Now, in chapter 1 and 2, remember we said that the word Israel, Israel relates to the northern kingdom because the northern kingdom was divided from the southern kingdom. Right, so next slide. Okay, so remember that uh, if you remember back in history when we did uh, Exodus uh, many years ago, we said that God had saved his people, one family, even though it was a great nation by then, who were in slavery and brought them into the promised land of Canaan. Okay, so next slide. So he gave the promised land to the 12 tribes. Okay, and that was about 1400 BC. Okay, next slide. But then by about 931 BC, there was a civil war, and two tribes separated to form Judah, and then the other tribes separated to form Israel, the northern kingdom. So even though God had sent Amos to speak to the people of the northern kingdom, Israel, he says that both Israel and Judah, one family under God, when he brought them out of Egypt, they were both guilty of sin before him, and they were going to face judgment. And it says there, in verse 2, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Now this word here, in verse 2, chosen, is a very important word. Okay? Now, 
some of your other translations, if uh, some of you use ESV Bibles, it will say, you only have I known. Okay, now basically what the word means is that God had chosen this family, the family of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, to have a relationship, an intimate relationship. This word chosen or known is used in the Bible in terms of a relationship between a husband and a wife. It's used in the Bible in terms of making love. It's, it's used in terms of a very close, intimate relationship. So what God had said was that you only have I chosen out of this whole world to have this close and covenant, intimate relationship. And this covenant relationship, this real close relationship, was a divine initiative by God to save one family. He brought them out of Egypt and He saved them only out of all the families of this world. And what He's saying here in verse 2 is that they are recipients of a great blessing. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, were, were, received something of great honour and privilege. But at the other hand, when God had chosen them to know them, this privilege of intimate relationship had a reciprocity to it. They had to re- respond to God with obedience, responsibility and duty. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as it says up here, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of this earth to be His people. His treasured possession, right? Again, out of all the people of the earth, He's chosen them. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate Him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands and decrees and laws I give you today. See, this relationship that God had with His people was not a one-way relationship of love but there was a relationship in which God's people had to obey His commands and decrees and laws. They were expected to be righteous and they were expected to be holy before Him. And that's why it says there in the second half of verse 2, Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Because, as we saw in chapter 2, God's people had not responded with their responsibilities and their obligations. As we saw last week, they had abused their privilege. They had exploited and abused their neighbour. They had committed lots of social sins. They had committed lots of sexual sins. They were practicing sexual morality in every place. They had committed religious sins of idolatry and worshipping all these idols. And as, as far as we can see, there was no repentance and no turning back to God. Now when you look at this uh, verse... It's uh, just words to us, right? But this word, therefore, would have been a very, very shocking thing to the Israelites. Because the therefore here is something that they would not expect. 
You see, let me read this to you again and let me write to you, uh, sorry, let me write as if I'm an Israelite and I'll be writing verse 1 and 2. The Lord has brought my whole family out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, God will be lenient with me. Therefore, God will not judge me. Therefore, God will give me special treatment. That is the way that Israel was thinking. You know, uh, I like reading crime novels, legal thrillers, um, Jack Reacher, whatever, right? And in, in a lot of uh, like John Grisham or all these novels, there's always uh, this stock character that come out, comes out. The father and the son. The father is usually a very powerful man. Maybe he's a rich businessman or a wealthy farm owner or he's a powerful politician. Maybe he's a police chief. Maybe he's the local mayor. Maybe he's the, prime, the president. And then he always has a son, usually the eldest son. And this eldest son is usually you know, the no-good son. He's always getting drunk. Maybe he rapes someone. Maybe he murders someone. Maybe he exploits workers, whatever. He commits a crime. But the father always uses his power to indulge the son. You know, have you read novels or seen movies that way? He turns a blind eye and he overlooks all the faults and the flaws of his son. So the son keeps sinning repeatedly, but the father will bail him out time and time again. And I think that that's how Israel thought God would be to her. After all, God has saved me and me alone out of all the families of this earth. Surely he will be lenient to me. Surely he will indulge me all my sinfulness. Therefore, he should not punish me. But instead, God says the opposite. You only have I chosen of all the families of this earth and therefore I will punish you for all your sins. See, being chosen by God, having an intimate relationship by God doesn't mean that God's holiness, God's judgment will not fall on unrepentant, persistent and rebellious sins against Him. It's like I said in Deuteronomy, if you keep doing this, you're actually showing that you hate God. Now, I think that that's a lesson for us as Christians. Because for some reason, nowadays I find many Christians somehow think that just because they have Jesus Christ, therefore, God will be very lenient upon them and always be merciful even if they keep sinning over and over and over again. I was listening to a sermon on a CD recently by a preacher and I was really shocked uh, that this preacher actually said that in the Bible, there is no such thing as repentance. He says that, actually, to be a Christian and to be saved, you do not need to repent. You don't need to change your behavior, you don't need to change your mind. Basically, it is repentantless Christianity. That's what he said. This same preacher went on to say that after the book of Acts, there is no discipleship in the Bible. Therefore, as Christians today, there is no discipleship as well. It's repentantless, discipleshipless Christianity. And all you need to do is let Jesus save you and just be the same person that you were. See, that's exactly how the Israelites felt to God, isn't it? They felt that as long as we have Jesus or as long as we have God on our side, we can do what we want and God will indulge us and not punish us. In the same way as Christians, we can make the same mistake. We think that just because we have Jesus, 
God will indulge us and we don't have to be serious about our Christian walk. We can do whatever we want over and over again and God will, will be patient with us for the rest of eternity. But look at the words of Jesus Christ because Jesus does not take this attitude with us. In John chapter 15, he says these very powerful and quite troubling words. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So it's not about good works, right? Jesus is saying, because of the word I've spoken to you, because you've accepted them, because you're in Christ, you're already clean before me. So it's not talking about good works. But he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, he can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches, branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Discipleship. Okay. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. See, Jesus' words here are very relevant. We are in Jesus Christ. We are clean in Jesus Christ. We are saved in Christ. But we must remain in Him. To remain in Him is to listen to Him and to obey His commands. It means we have to be renewed and transformed and committed to living the lives that Jesus wants us to live. We cannot take for granted that just because we proclaim Jesus and say we believe in Him, that we are actually saved. We must actually remain in Jesus Christ. Well, the problem here was that in, in, in Israel's time, they were not being remaining in God, they were choosing to do things which God had, deli- had said very clearly for them not to do. So in verse 3 to verse 8, um, God uses a, a sort of a dialogue uh, strategy to show His people how serious it is or how logical it is for judgment to follow sin. Now, I'm not sure if uh, any of you have heard of Socrates. Anybody heard of Socrates? Uh, he's not the soccer player. He's a Greek philosopher. Okay? And uh, Socrates uh, was a, a very famous Greek philosopher and he has this method called the Socratic uh, method. You can look it up on Wikipedia. You know, it's, it's there. I'm not making it up. Now, the Socratic method was basically a, a style of proving the, the uh, logic of a conclusion by using question and answer. And basically, it's a, it's a negative method in which you ask questions and answers to show that a person's hypothesis is wrong. And that's exactly what God is doing here. right? He's, he's asking all these questions where there's a cause and effect. You do something and you get a result. And He wants to show by pure logic that the assumptions of the Israelites are wrong that there is judgment, and judgment must flow from the cause, which is sin. So 
So he begins by the first question saying, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? And the question is, no, right? Two people don't walk together unless there's agreement, isn't it? So um, when you're talking about walking together, we're not just talking about the stroll around the botanical gardens or gardens by the bay. Because in the olden days, when they traveled from one town to another, people needed to walk together for safety. Right? I, I think in Singapore, we've lost uh, our natural instinct for safety. I remember coming back quite late, uh, just the other night, my HDB flat about midnight, and uh, I, I drove my car, I parked my car there, and I walked past this woman, and, and she was oblivious to me the whole time, just looking at her iPhone, right? I was thinking, I could be a mugger, right? Waiting to steal her phone or whatever, and she, and she just walked past me, you know, imagine midnight, just walked past me in the dark. But anyway, in the olden days where there was real danger of being mugged and killed, like, remember the, the story of the Good Samaritan? People used to gather together to walk from town to town for safety. And obviously, to walk together, you must make an agreement to meet at a certain time on a certain day to make that journey to that place. And what Jesus, God is saying here is, do two people walk together unless they have had agreement to do so? No, isn't it? You need to make an agreement in order to go together. But I think that as we look at the context of what is being said here, there is a, a, deeper, a deeper argument. In the sense where God is saying, does God and His people walk together in relationship, in the relationship, covenant relationship that they have, unless they have both agreed to do so? And I think that that's what He's actually saying. He's saying to His people, have we not come together because we've agreed that I'm your God and you are my people? See, in Exodus chapter 19, when God met with His people at uh, Sinai, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and said before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. See, God and his people were together, walking together, because they had agreed to be together. It wasn't as if it just happened, but this was what their agreement was. Therefore, they had to keep up each end of their agreement, but that wasn't done. God then says, does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it's caught? Nothing. Now again, this will be a very common uh, phenomenon for them. Obviously, when we did the Bible study, no one could understand what was being said here because we never encounter real lions except in the zoo. But, Apparently in the wild, uh, lions will only roar just as they attack their prey because it's part of the terror technique, you know. It's like when they roar, the, the, the prey will get shocked and for a split second won't know what to do. Uh, apparently, if uh, someone said if you watch Planet of the Dawn of the Apes, something you'll understand this analogy, right? Because it's pointless for a lion to roar when there's no prey because then the prey will know the lion's there. Okay, let's stay far away, isn't it? 
it only roar just as it's about to pounce on its prey. In the same way, it only growl when it has its prey, or sorry, when it's already caught something to warn others away from trying to steal what it already has. Now, I think from a, again, coming back to the context of Amos, we already read in chapter 1, verse 2, next slide, that the Lord was roaring at the time, right? That's what Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. So I think there's also a deeper meaning to what uh, Amos is saying here, what God is saying through Amos. That God will not roar for nothing, right? God will not roar unless its prey is already there. So what it's actually really saying here is God is roaring because it really has in its sights Israel as its prey. God is roaring because He's going to bring judgment on Israel. In verse 5, it says, There's a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground where there is no bait there. Does a trap spring up from the ground when it is caught, when it's not caught anything? Again, the answer is no. It's like, your trap doesn't spring unless something wanders into it. Uh, When I used to live in my dad's house, we used to have uh, periodic uh, outbreaks of um, rats or, or mice because, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's lots of near the botanical gardens. So every once in a while, you get a family of rats decide to move into our area. So you, you can never ever catch one. Once you catch one, there will always be like three or four because, you know, the mummy, dad, the daddy rat, and then all the other rats will come, right? So once you set the trap, the trap will never spring by itself. It only spring because the rat has pulled the the, the bait and, and, and unlock the cage so that the cage would snap in, in and trap the, the mouse. Now again, when we understand the Old Testament, when we, uh, when we read it, it's sort of wa- looking at the wider picture of judgment, right? It's sort of saying, judgment will not come unless sin has sprung it to allow it to come. Right? So it's like, God will not judge people for nothing. God will only judge you because your sin or your persistent sin has, has allowed God's judgment to spring upon you. Uh, now, I, I know again it's hard to understand, but you know when you set the rat trap, it's like the, you, you can't set the spring too loose, you know, because if you set it too loose, then the moment you move your hand, the, the trap will spring, right? You need to set it so that when the rat keeps um, shaking the bakwa, whatever you put there, it will, it will actually cause the the trap to the spring. And that's what is basically in view here. It's like once you persistently, consistently, rebelliously sin, the trap will spring upon you and God's judgment will come on you. So in Proverbs chapter 7, it has a very similar example of how following sin is like setting a trap which will spring on you and bring judgment and death upon you. So here in Proverbs chapter 7, it talks of the adulterous woman or the prostitute. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced, she seduced him with a smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a, a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. And what the warning here is for Israel is that God's judgment doesn't come for nothing. God's judgment comes because there is persistent and rebellious sin. The breaking of God's law that triggers judgment upon Him. 
upon them, I mean. In verse 6 to 8 comes the high point or the lesson of all these questions. It says, When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing His plan to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Now, here in verse 6, uh, the example comes to a trumpet. Okay? And what used to happen in the past was, uh, when they had a wall, a fortress, they would put soldiers watching out for the enemy. And when the enemy came, the, the soldier would blow into the trumpet, you know, da, 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 right, whatever. It's a bit like an air raid siren, you know, like, you know, you watch a World War II and the air raid siren comes, everybody goes into the underground shelters. Now, obviously, whenever you hear the trumpet blaring away or the air raid siren, you know, shrilling in the air, you would fear because you know the enemy is coming. Uh, the, the bombs are coming, you know, siege was coming. You would tremble. But the problem was, as we look at this passage, is God was sounding the trumpet to Amos. The trumpet was blowing loud and clear. The lion was roaring. But yet in ancient Israel, the people of God were not trembling. They were not taking the word of Amos seriously. Amos is saying, look, the sovereign Lord has revealed his plans to me, his servant. Uh, what can I do but prophesy? The Lord is roaring. The trumpet is blaring. But there is no response from God's people. They are not fearful of God's judgment. They are complacent. They are indulgent. They think that God will not judge them. Now, I think that this is such an important thing for us to understand. And I think that that's why when I prepared this sermon, I thought that I would end here rather than going to the very end. Because I think that for so many Christians today, especially in so many churches that I've visited, people have this wrong view that just because I go to church, just because I'm a Christian, just because of all these things, God will be indulgent upon me, even if I sin persistently, rebelliously, and I lack repentance. That somehow God will be this indulgent Father who will just turn a blind eye, even if I sin over and over again. But even as Christians... We have a great privilege and blessings from God, but we cannot take God's blessing and privilege to us lightly. We must remain in Christ through our actions, through our words and our hearts. Again, the words of Jesus are very powerful to us. He says, this time from the book of Matthew, or the Gospel of Matthew, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of, he of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, I think that these two sections of Jesus' words are very clear to us that as God's people, 
we are to behave in a certain way, we are to be like the salt of the earth, we are to be different from other people, we are to be like a preservative in this world. And if we lose our distinctiveness, lose our saltiness, and we sin and rebel like the rest of the world, then we will be worth nothing but to be thrown out. Oh, you took it down. Can you leave it up there? And to be trampled by men. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, if, oh, if you look at this thing, if you see here, that even it says there in Matthew chapter 7, even if we prophesy in Jesus' name, that means, it doesn't naturally mean that, you know, I just tell the future. Prophecy in God's word brings in the context of teaching. Prophecy and teaching are very similar in the New Testament. Even if I'm teaching God's word here from the pulpit, even if you're teaching God's word as a Bible study, leader, whatever, Jesus can still deny you if you do not obey the will of his Father if you are an evildoer. It says that even if you drive out demons and perform many miracles, that doesn't validify you before God. It doesn't mean that you are in Christ, but rather it is to be doing the will of God the Father to remain in Jesus. I think the problem is today that for many churches we are serious about many things, but not the most important thing which is to remain in Jesus Christ. So, I guess in many prosperity gospel churches, they're very serious about receiving God's blessings, about prosperity, about health. In uh, charismatic churches, they're very serious about receiving the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. But God will not save you because you are a rich man or a rich woman. God will not save you because you speak in tongues. Right? There's no audition in heaven where you go up there and you can speak in tongues and therefore you're saved. You're saved because you remain in Christ, because you are transformed in Christ with a renewed mind in your regenerate and godly in your character. I think even for us as evangelical Christians, there is a danger where we're very serious in terms of growing in our Bible knowledge and growing in terms of our right doctrine and theology. But again, when we go to heaven, we're not going to be sitting for an exam or we pass if we know enough Bible knowledge. But rather, even if we understand God, it must be aligned with obedience and a seriousness in terms of our godly walk. I think that there is a difference, coming back to chapter 3, verse 1, there's a difference about knowing about God and knowing God. You see, you can know about God in your mind. You can know a lot about God. But knowing God is the relationship. And in a relationship, it's not just about knowledge, but it's about obedience. It is about righteousness. It's about being transformed. It's about being vital in your Christian character, vital in your Christian walk, both as individuals and as a church. So let's take warning from the book of Amos. Let us see that even as we remain in Jesus Christ, we cannot take our salvation for granted. We cannot say, oh, because I'm in Christ, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. And God will not judge me because I have Jesus Christ. Let us see that to be in Christ, we must remain in Christ. There are obligations and duties on our part too. We must seek to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and to be vital in our Christian life and our character. And only then, and only then, truly then, will we remain in Jesus Christ. 
And will we be truly at peace because we know that when Jesus comes, when He comes to us, He will be truly pleased with us because we have kept His word. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that the lessons from the book of Amos are just as relevant to us today as we sit here, as we listen to your word in Amos chapter 3. We pray that you may help us to examine our hearts, our attitudes, our minds, and to really confront any delusion that we might have that just because we come to church or just because we have Jesus Christ, you will turn a blind eye to any persistent and rebellious sin before you. Help us to see how your holy character demands that if we turn our back against you, if we seek only our own pleasure and to sin and to iniquity before you, we too will be subject to judgment. Help us to see that we are not saved by our Bible knowledge or we are not saved because we serve you in particular ways, but we are saved because we remain in Jesus Christ. Help us to be obedient to his will, obedient to his instruction, obedient to his word. And dear Father, never to take for granted this great privilege and honour it is to be saved in Christ, to have all our sins paid by Him, but to respond with great gratitude by a renewed mind, a transformed life, a life where we are totally and absolutely given to You in everything that we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.